Welcome to the Arise podcast with Danielle Castillejo and Maggie Hemphill, conversations around faith, race, justice, gender, and the church. Hey, thanks Maggie for introducing us. I'm excited to be here today. Um, and we have a special guest, Dr. Philip Allen. He's an author of the book, Open Wounds. He's a PhD candidate and a filmmaker. And he's the founder and president of the Racial Solidarity Project. So I found Dr. Allen or Phil, as he invited us to call him in the introduction, on Instagram through Truth's Table. I was like, wait a minute, who is this guy? And so I thought I looked him up on Instagram and then it led to me messaging him. And then here we are. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Honored to be here. Excited to be here. Ready to go. Yeah, just we we I mean, obviously, we're still in the time of pandemic and the upheaval that has been exposed that was just under the surface of our country is still going on. And so just want to check in with you, like where you located, um, how's the pandemic affecting you right now? And, you know, where do you find yourself just as we get rolling? Um, located in terms of geography, you mean? Yes. Um, I'm in Pasadena, California, just outside of L.A. Um, it hasn't, to my knowledge, it hasn't been um, incredibly bad um, here. This 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 uh, rise in, in cases, I haven't seen where it's been too bad in Pasadena. Um, I'm pretty much, um, you know, I say tell people I'm perpetually quarantined. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm always it's just me here in my apartment. Um, I read, I go running, um, I do go out and, and have, you know, lunch and what have you with, with, with or coffee with, with friends, but most of my friends, probably 90 plus percent are vaccinated. Um, and then I'm very, very mindful, very aware of where I'm at. Uh, I mask up when I'm around a good group of people and, um, usually outside I'm eating. Uh, very rarely am I eating indoors somewhere. But I'm I'm I've been good. I've been good. I'm an, I'm highly introverted, like highly highly introverted. And people think I'm joking when I say that, but I'm I'm serious. I've always been that way. I just learned that maybe seven years ago that I was an introvert. Um, so this it hasn't really affected me emotionally, mentally, um, too much. It it's actually allowed me to be very productive. Um, I had nowhere to go, um, nowhere to really be. So I'm just, I've just been writing, um, publishing papers, articles, um, working on a second book. So I've been in a good space actually um, during the during the season. I, I'm more concerned about how others are doing, uh, but it hasn't been too bad here. Yeah, and I mean, then you, yeah, your book was published, Open Wounds. What month was it published? February. February. So you push out this book. And I mean, I don't know when you started writing, but it has a high, I mean, it's totally relevant. It's what's happening in our nation, in our country. Um, I know you referenced Resma Menicum a number of times, and we even talked about that prior. So just love to hear a little bit about the process of writing the book and how it came to be and just where it's at right now. Yeah. So when I started, when the idea came to, to write this book, I was taking a class called um, Theology and Ethics of Martin Luther King at, at, here at Fuller. 
And um, we were watching a video of Emmett Till. Actually, it wasn't of Emmett Till. It was of the Civil Rights Movement, Eyes on the Prize. It's on YouTube, the whole series, PBS series on YouTube. And watching this, this series, there's a picture, an image of Emmett Till that came up, and you can see his body. And I imagined for the first time, I'd never made this connection before, because I just re recently gotten details of my grandfather's murder um, in 1953. So I imagined that being my grandfather's body. That's how it would have looked, because he was in the river for several days before his body floated, floated up and they found him. And I made the statement, I don't think, I, I talk about it in the book. I don't, uh, I can't see Emmett Till without seeing my grandfather. And the response of the classmates really, really surprised me. Uh, I didn't really think people, it would matter to people, but there were, there were people in tears when I told the story of my grandfather. And that's when I realized I'm gonna have to write this, I'm gonna have to tell this story. When I went to Sundance, so, so I started, I don't think I started writing right away though. When I went to Sundance for a class, a directed reading, um, which I never thought I'd be in Sundance, watching film all week, and then writing a, a paper about it at the end of the week, which became the most in, in, impactful class that I've taken in my PhD studies. It's produced the most work, the book, the film, and other, other publications. So I did the same thing there at a forum, and people were just blown away I had made this film that was at Sundance. I'd made the content of the film real for them. I personally, it was, it was something that personally happened to my family and people were encouraging me to make a film. But I didn't know I'd be making a film when I went there. I knew I was gonna write the book. So I started writing the book after that. And I think I got like four chapters in, I outlined everything. I wasn't sure if I was gonna self publish or not. I didn't have any prospects and it wasn't until we got the film going and then a professor was, was uh, he advocated for me with a publisher with Fortress Press, presented it to them, they loved it. And then when once we signed the contract, that, I wrote half the book and I had this tendency of starting stuff and not finishing. And I said, I don't want to finish this right now, I had so much on my plate, unless I have the prospects of it getting published. I'm not gonna self-publish it. I decided not to do that. Once we signed, I finished the book in three months. Yeah, like three months. I just, I was writing, it was at the very beginning of the pandemic, pandemic I believe, was it? I think it, 2000, no, it wasn't a bit, it, I'm confused, but anyway, I just started writing. I just started writing. It was at the beginning of the pandemic, yes. And I just started writing, writing every day. And we got it done and then went through about four rounds of edits over the summer and um, got it done and published it in, in, in February. It was, it was the process though, I did not expect it to be as emotional and, and taxing. Um, and triggering as it was, uh, especially when you're editing, after you've written it, you're going back to reread and you have to kind of get out of your emotions and be in uh, analytical mode, editing mode, proofreading mode. Um, and then I would, there would be incidents 
um, in the, that I would experience after writing for two, three hours, I would encounter someone at, a, say, a grocery store. And it'd be a white guy, older white guy, and would do something or say something. Like one guy almost hit me, come and go into, walk into my car. Like literally within 12 inches of hitting me, he, did, he never slowed down. He never stopped, I should say. He slowed down, but he never stopped. He just kept on rolling. And I had to kind of quickly jump out of the way and got into an altercation with him. But that was coming right off of the heels of writing for three hours. So I was already on 10 or 8. And um, I realized then how much writing this book was impacting me. And I had to have some accountability. I had to have ways of checking in um, as I engage with people and not let it be an outflow of the intensity of writing the book that wouldn't necessarily be healthy. Yeah, I'm just thinking about how, especially as you described that, that moment of almost getting hit, like it was, it was that kind of blurring of past and present, right? Because you had been deep in your past and, and how that has shaped you. And then to be out in the present and have some kind of, you know, I don't want to say altercation, because that's too strong of a word, but incident where, where it rubs right up against what you have been talking about. Um, I think that is what's really profound about the book in general. Um, it, it is a way of bringing the past into the present so that we can all acknowledge how it is shaping us and affecting us. One of the things that was really um, impactful for me was as you were describing um, the, the layers of racism that your family experienced with the murder of your, your grandfather. Um, you kind of talked about for sure structural, uh, but then you know, there was the passive um, racism that was happening. And I would love for you to just kind of open that up for us right now and kind of talk about, you know, racism, we, we kind of put it in this tiny little box and we want it to be this, this, this tiny little thing, but through the sharing of your story, you were able to kind of unpack how layered racism is. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, when I was writing that section, I wanted to make sure people understood those layers or the dynamics or the way, the iterations of racism, that it goes beyond just bigotry, what we would say active racism, the things that we can see that's in that little box, safely in that box, oh, I don't do that thing. Um, I don't know anyone who says those things. So racism is not that big of a deal. So I wanted them to see that situation was a microcosm of how it plays out in our country. Um, the reason why I think racism may be the, the, the most destructive thing, and it's not just like any other sin or injustice, is because one, it permeates all aspects of society. Our society was organized along race, class, and gender. But even among class and gender, if you look, if you, once you overlay race upon that, you will see the distinction between the experiences. Say a white woman and a black woman can both be treated, uh, have a similar experience, but when you add race to it, that black woman then comes on below, beneath, all right? Or that indigenous woman comes beneath, right? There's still that hierarchy based on race. And, and, and almost like a, a poor white guy may still have it <laughs> or have the potential to have it better than a middle-class black guy or a wealthy black guy even, right? Because there's some certain things that he's still gonna be insulated from. So 
I talked about the bigotry. I talked about the active racism of shooting my grandfather or the, the, the guys that tried to hold my grandfather down, right? Those that, that's in the box. We can see that. That's wrong. What you don't see is the passive racism of the, 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 the supposed witness that saw something going on but said nothing. Uh, and to some degree, the men who were holding him down, maybe they didn't think he was going to get shot. Let's just say maybe they thought he was going to be going to scare him or something. Well, they didn't say anything. They didn't, their conscience was not pricked enough to, to say anything. But now they're passive because they're, they're, they're complicit, not just in holding them down, but not reporting it. Then there's the, the, the lack of investigation. So now the, the, the law enforcement is involved and they're complicit because they're not willing to look further at what's going on. Because there is a bullet hole in his head. Then you have the, the medical examiner who signs off on the death certificate, accidental drowning. So you have this whole network operating cohesively, coherently, together, right? And that's what the picture of racism I wanted to convey in that section, that it's not just this one thing, it's an entire network that our society is organized around. And, um, I hope it came across, I hope that message was conveyed because I, even, even I, I'm challenging myself to not talk just about my experiences with bigotry because that keeps the conversation narrow. Now, I don't wanna ignore that because you never wanna dismiss people's experiences and say, well, it's just about this big structural institutional. I think you do both. I think you talk about the act of racism in the context of the institution, the structures, how can it even continue? How can it be perpetuated where these, well, these things are at play that allows these things to keep happening generation after generation, right? Um, and you talk about the past. I just had a back and forth with a pastor. It didn't get too bad. Um, I think it was cordial. I, I, I knew him, I know him. And he couldn't understand why we keep talking about the past. He wants solutions moving forward. I said, well, how, do you, how can you get solutions to move forward when you don't even know how we got here? You're just gonna compound the issue or potentially cause more, more trauma, more problems because you don't even know how we got here. You don't even know how the past, as you said, shapes us today. The legacy of the past we're living out today and you wanna skip past that. I said, that's, that's, not, that's not part of the solution. He kept asking about the solution. I said, that is the solution. That's the first step to know how we got to this place so that we can start to undo and get to the root causes of, of the issues in our society um, when it comes to race. And he, I, don't think he, I don't think he wanted to hear that, but that's been the battle is, um, he said he, he stopped kinda, well, he didn't really, he, he's been watching, reading my posts, but recently he's been turned off because I've, uh, I'm posting a lot about the past. And I, and I just didn't understand why, why he couldn't understand. I said, you can, then stop preaching the gospel. Stop quoting scripture because the, the, the entire Bible, the story is a story of the past. Matter of fact, a past that's like 2000 plus years. So every time you quote scripture, every time you tell a story, every time you share the gospel, you're talking about the past. And sometimes it's so irrelevant to people who are dealing with issues today they need solutions now, but you still talk about the past.
So why can't we do the same thing when it comes to racism in this country? Yeah, that's brilliant. And and I just kind of want to add, like you did that really well in your book. Um, each chapter had these theological uh, reflections. And um, I, I loved how you were able to weave those together. One that stood out the most to me was you returned, you know, two, maybe three times to the story of the Good Samaritan uh, that, you know, this is a familiar story that everybody that feels like they all know it's in our you know collective conscious conscience and um, there were two things that you brought out that really were kind of a new thinking for me. Um, one was the describing of the winding road as sort of an active part of the story. And I had never thought of that. I, you know, you think of the three people that passed by, you think of the, you know, the guy who was beat up, um, but to think about the winding road as a participant and how that looks like that, how that translates to systemic and structural racism. And the second part, which like blew my mind was because you don't hear this in, in white evangelical spaces, right? That Jesus purposely identifies the ethnicity of all the characters in that story. Mm -hmm. And if you were to remove that, the story is different, right? It means something different. Yeah. And so I, I thought that was brilliant. And, and to, to tie that to what you just said about if we're going to quote scripture from the past and make it relevant for today, that that's how we do it, right? You're talking about your story and you're weaving it with the theological um, reflections. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that's Good Samaritan is so rich. I mean, you could write an entire book on that story, that parable alone. The first time I heard that analogy about the winding road was from Dr. King, I think is in one of his speeches, but also in Strength to Love. Um, he talks about the wind. He talks about the winding road, having to fix the winding road. Because the next person is going to get going to come traveling, they're going to they, they likely can have the same experience. Right. And that, like you said, it blew me away. I, I hadn't thought about um, prior to that, the winding road as a as a, a part of the problem, right? Um, but I think even that can be a, a, an anal a good analogy, but a microcosm of what we're dealing with. No one really wants to change the winding road, right? This road has always been winded, winding. It's always been this way. There's only there's only the, the uh, certain groups of people that are experiencing problems on this road. But it's not that big of a deal. And that's how we look at injustice. Again, we can look at this racially, gender, class, um, ability. We can look at it in so many ways, but there are many winding roads that we have to address, right? Um, so the question is, who benefits from this, from this road staying in the way that it is? That's the question no one really wants to, the, the powers that be want to answer. Who benefits from status quo well i think that's where where i come to the democracy people say like it's a democracy republic blah 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 but let's be honest it was created for white men so they're the ones that were initially given the right to vote they created the system for themselves so this was not a create yes. a system that was created for all of us specifically not me or my husband yes. or the they weren't even the indigenous peoples of this land weren't even looked as people they're not human so therefore they weren't included in the concept of democracy or rights or so when it when we even look at 
when we even look at the Declaration of Independence, it is not a declaration for anybody other than white male men. Yes. And then therefore benefits their their uh, their spouses and their families. Yep. But, but we it's important to name that. And I think there's a difference between looking at this material and feeling so shamed by our history that we become paralyzed and cannot move, that we drown in our shame mm -hmm. or versus looking at the system and saying, well, OK, so I actually want to create a more equal system. I want to have this certain inalienable rights. I want that to be applied to more than just white male men. I think we're talking about, we're up against powers and structures and principalities. And then, you know, like we're up against the system and then it, it manifests in the very real terrorism of your grandfather. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and, you know, as you, as you were sharing, I'm just thinking about those who dominate power, those who are in control, that's why you see incremental change so slow because it, that means they're gonna to have to give something up. See, I think it's not just about policies, it's about personnel as well. Um, who's sitting at the table making decisions? Who's representing who? And, and that, that's where a lot of the fight is, right? Um, but this, this foundation of this country being built for white men, my spiritual dad said once, and I never forget this, you cannot build on another man's foundation. And if that foundation is compromised, why do we continue to build upon it? Why do we continue to think that we can just tweak it and all will be okay? Why do we think that we can use cosmetics, tokenism, um, things like that to to make it look better. The system is still, is still compromised. The foundation is still compromised, yet we continue to build upon it. And until we get a completely different personnel sitting at the table, making those decisions to represent everybody, we're gonna, get, we're gonna be having the same conversation a generation from now, two generations from now, right? But you're right, it, it was never built for anybody but white men. And even saying that makes white men, when I have the conversation, it upsets them. But it's the truth. It's literally the truth, <laughs> right? And until we reckon with that, what are we doing? I mean, that there's that idea that the truth sets you free, but it also makes you miserable if you have to face it and you then have to push it out of your way. Yeah. So there's a bind there for white men. There's yeah. this concept of freedom, but yet the truth is you have not given freedom to these other people and assumed rights. And so therefore you're miserable. And these people are simply fighting for the very thing that you claim that they have a right to mm -hmm. for generations. Mm -hmm. So I guess that leads me into like, I saw you say some things about like solidarity versus like, versus like reconciliation. So I, I guess 
like my mind is just sparked along the lines of that as we're talking. So solidarity versus reconciliation. I used to say re racial reconciliation all the time. And I had a professor, um, Dr. Love Secrets. She would cringe when I use reconciliation. And I'm like, you know, why is she doing that? Why? why? And she said, Phil, there's something else. She could reconciliation at the end of the day can it's, it's been it's been diluted. It's been watered down. It's been weakened with, because it's been used. But you know, which usually happens with with terms when the masses get a hold of it. It it starts to just take on different meanings. It, it doesn't really mean what it originally should have. And so she was. Her argument was, one, it's been watered down, but reconciliation. How I'm how I interpreted what she was saying is that it deals really with the interpersonal interpersonal relationships. Um, you and I can be good. The three of us can be can have a reconciled relationship and not be in solidarity. In other words, we will be friends, but if there's a, a, another entity outside of our community that's affecting me, but not you, and you do nothing about it, you step aside and you allow me to just keep experiencing this thing but you're not willing to stand in with me against that outside entity. Then the question is, are we really reconciled? Or at least to what degree are we reconciled? And solidarity doesn't ask, ask that question. Solidarity says, I stand with you against this entity that's affecting you, even when it's not impacting me. So there's risk involved. And so, I think solidarity is where we may want to be, but we can't get there without so reconciliation where we want to be, but we can't get there without solidarity. So the, the, in 2 Corinthians 5, where it talks about we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, we've been reconciled to God, blah, blah, blah. Well, what allowed that to happen? The solidaric act of God. God won taking on flesh. That's solidarity. I write in a, in a paper, I wrote in a paper a couple years ago, God could have remained in the mystery and invisibility of God's self and still be God and still do God things. But God chose to take on flesh, human flesh, and John 4, 1, 14, and dwell among us. That's solidarity. That solidarity leads to fatigue, temptation, suffering, and ultimately going to the cross to die on behalf of humanity or creation, right? That solidarity that even gets us to the conversation of reconciliation. And so that's why I push people towards more so than reconciliation, because I think reconciliation is easy. Reconciliation calls us, asks us to forget so that we can be good, united, get along. Because if we keep remember, if we remember the, the offenses, it's gonna be hard for us to be reconciled because we had this thing. Solidarity requires that we remember the thing. Because that's the, that's the very thing that brings us together. That's the very thing that, 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 that inspires us to be in solidarity. It's the thing. So solidarity to me is about remembering 
Reconciliation says, let's forget and move on. We're good, right? And then that's, that's where I think, like, that's where I'm at, like, is our faith big enough? We don't have to believe. We don't have to have even the faith of a mustard seed to reconcile. Because we don't have to remember. We don't have to engage our faith. Faith is about remembering. Yes. Faith is not just about the present. It's about remembering. We talk about having a mutual faith. We're talking about a mutual remembering. Yes. But yes. We do not share faith unless we remember. Yes. And, and faith cannot be engaged without justice and mercy. Yes. And so yes. if we cannot, if we remember injustice and unmerciful times, then our faith calls us to remember that shared path so we can stand in solidarity with you. We have to remember what happened to your grandfather to share our faith. Amen. 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 That's it. That's it. Yeah, what, when you kind of talked about this in your book about solidarity um, being required for the kind of communal trauma uh, that we've experienced and, and, and members of the BIPOC community, uh, I like the way you described it as, as trauma is disorienting um, and uh, solidarity is what's going to help us reorient. Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, this idea of trauma I think one of the things that we're so good at is compartmentalizing and fragmenting. And we don't appreciate how, how much of a shared trauma we have. Um, I, I think back to my hometown, and if, if, you, if you hear people talk about it, your grandfather, what happened to your grandfather? And what I wanna say is, no, what happened to us? The community was wounded. Black and white folks alike. They just don't know that they were wounded. I mean, there are people who still think my grandfather drowned. Black folks, his age. They think he drowned. And we're walking, we, we, I, it made me look at my community differently. That, wow, they don't even realize that collectively they're trauma, they were traumatized. And even the white folks, they didn't realize this is affecting them too. And I think that's where a lot of the, the, the sickness remains is that we won't address, we, we're, not, we're unwilling to diagnose or to be diagnosed, you know, with, with, with uh, what the trauma may, may cause. We think it's it's it happened to them. So I, I present this as this is our story, right? Not just my hometown, but even beyond. And you'll be amazed at how many people share stories similarly. This happened to my grandfather. This happened to my, my uncle. I heard about what happened to, and these are older people a lot of times, what happened to my brother in the 60s. They never, they never, they never spoke out. They never shared that before in their lives. They were carrying that trauma. Or the man who comes up to me and says, the white guy who comes up to me and says, I remember as a kid seeing my pictures of my grandfather standing in front of lynched bodies all around the house. He's in tears. What is a kid seven, eight, nine years old supposed to do with that? That's not normal. It may be normalized, that ain't normal. 
And so he's carrying that all his life. You don't think that he's that there's some trauma there, that there's something abnormal that he's he's experiencing and is forcing his soul to accept it. Forcing his being to accept this as okay. Until he heard a young black kid, young black man preach on it in what when he by the time he turns 60 something preaches on it and now he's forced to to to, to remember and he's in tears now. He doesn't know what to do with it. His body is responding now. Right? Yeah, and you invited all people, right, to listen to their bodies. And I think that is, like you mentioned, like one of the primary problems with the with trauma is the fragmentation and and you didn't use this word but dissociation right we're not connected anymore to our bodies that goes for for you know white people and people of color like we have we had those are the coping mechanisms that we have used to get through um shared trauma collective trauma and it looks differently for different people um but yeah i, I loved your invitation for us to listen not just to each other but also to our bodies yeah yeah, um, that's something I, I just recently learned <laughs> to listen to my body. Um, we, 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 we have submitted to the sovereignty of reason that that is the way we know things. And, rea and reality is our bodies know things too. Things that our minds may have suppressed um, our memory it, it escapes our memory, but our bodies know. And I think that's where a lot of healing can happen if we're willing, to, if we're brave enough to to take those those steps toward um, what is our body saying to us? What was my body? What was my grandmother's body saying to her when I asked her that question about my grandfather's death? She didn't know. She doesn't have the language for it, right? Uh, I didn't know at the time. I know now. Her body did not want to remember, doesn't want, didn't want to revisit. Her alarm system was now on and she didn't know what to do with that. But if she had the resources, someone could have walked her through that. Let's, let's look at why is your, what is your body saying to you and give her a chance to explore it, right? Um, yeah. Which I think leads to the part of the conversation that we were talking about beforehand, like, how do you see it through your studies and through just kind of almost embodying healing for your family around, around the death of your grandfather? Like, how do you see, like, the resilience of your ancestors and the resilience you're, you're also, you building on it and also creating new pathways? Like, how do you see that? Um, if I understand you correctly, um, how my understanding, um, kind of a redemptive part of this, if I'm, if I, that's what, that's what I'm coming. Yeah. Like the, like, I think like the idea that your ancestors, my ancestors, we have ways of, of being resilient in the face of collective trauma. Mm -hmm. So how do you see that happening for you as well as like you said, now you know to listen to your body in these new ways. So you're also building new pathways forward. So 
just kind of touching on those areas of resilience that you have in you that are already wise and what new things, you know? Um, I think telling the story, um, narrating my story is empowering. Um, even if it, even if it's painful, it's still empowering. So I think for me, once I, once I began to tell the story, um, it was like I was unleashed and it, it empowered me, it strengthened me. And the fact that I could go through the process, the fact that I could make the film uh, with my, my friend, my director, the director, L. Michael Lee, the fact that we could, we could do that is, a, is an example and evidence of resiliency. Um, and I, I would say it began the second time I asked my grandmother the question and she was able to, to, to answer. Very different response within maybe a five to 10 year period, seven to 10 year period. Very different response. This time it's almost like she was prepared, right? Um, the resiliency of my, my dad and his siblings who could, who could have the conversation, his brother who could have the conversation with me, the painful conversation revisiting where they were um, as kids when they found out years later how their father died, things like that. They were telling this, I gave them permission to tell the story that they've never really talked about. So it opened up a whole new you know, avenue, a whole new, these, these other pathways for healing for them. And for my father, for us to engage, think about it. My, my father is engaging his son about his father, having conversations he's never had in his life. The fact that we could begin to talk about his father and what happened, or even what we learned before his father was killed, what we learned about him. Telling that story is, I think, what fired up the juices of resiliency for both of us. And I think that's important for a lot of people. Um, you know, if you go to therapy, you're asked a lot of questions and you have to begin to tell the story and it's painful. But if you can get past that initial pain and realize I'm okay, I'm still okay, you're more likely to continue telling the, st the rest of your story. Someone's listening. And I think that empowers people or, or stirs up this, this uh, resiliency in, in, in people. Yeah, and I'm just struck by what you said in regards to your grandmother that she was more able to engage the second time. Um, she had had the, the space and the freedom to be thinking about those things after you had initially asked that question to her about your grandfather. And so like, it's not that we just tell our stories one time, right? It's that through the telling and the retelling, that's where the resiliency is built. That's where we can hand down the wisdom to the next generation as you're talking about with your father, engaging your father about his father. And it's through the, that, that space of storytelling that we are, are um, given the room to grow and to stretch. Like you kind of talked about the pain. I think of that, uh, Reza Menachem talks about clean pain versus dirty pain. Um, and this is that clean pain space that leads leads to growth, whereas dirty, po dirty pain he describes as like avoidance or not talking about it actually just leads to more pain. Mm -hmm. And so I love how you're describing the storytelling is that clean pain that leads towards healing, that leads to resilience and invites the community to do it as well. Yep. And, and towards solidarity. And then and then when you when you add creativity 
to that that storytelling. So whether it's filmmaking or painting, sketching, poetry, I, I, poetry is my thing. I'm a poet, and so I'm not just telling the story. I'm telling the story creatively. I'm 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 using my imagination. I'm using metaphors and, and things like that, and so that adds to the healing for me. That builds up even more resiliency um, or confidence that I that I am resilient uh, when I can use those things, those skills. Yeah, I just there's so much beauty in that, and also just the cost to your own body and the cost to your grandmother's body. You know, um, I just. Yeah, I feel the weight of that, that there even has to be resiliency there. Yep. It's, it's a brutal thought. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's a cost. I, I felt that the cost to my body, I felt that going through this PhD program with what I researched, with that, what I study, that intersection of race, racism, theology, justice, um, and I'm sitting in that, whether I'm researching, reading, writing, reflecting all the time. And so for me, I run, I run, I match the weight of what I'm doing. I try to match that with practices of wellness and not reactionary, but being proactive. So I ran a marathon this past Thursday. I don't, don't, I just wanted to do it on my birthday. This is 48 years old, yay. But really I was matching, I, I'm, I'm in a process of matching the weight of the work that I'm doing, the history that I'm remembering, um, the, the, the future that I'm envisioning. I'm matching that with practices of wellness. Things that my grandmother, and actually my grandmother did, I think she did know that. She walked every day, three miles, two or three miles every day. I literally just think about this for the first time right now. She had these practices. She worked in her yard. She had these practices, whether she was conscious or not, of wellness. And it may not have gotten her out of a certain space, but it sustained her and kept her having a strong base to go through like like just above survival <laughs> although i think i do think that she had seasons of her life where she flourished she was just above survival and she was able to maintain and be strong and, and still move forward and do and accomplish and some great things and influence in the city in the town i think she did have those practices of wellness now that i think about it yeah you also mentioned in the book um her rocking and that her body was responding. Um, there was a sweet moment where you had asked, and without an answer, like, did she dance with my grandfather? That hit me. Because whenever I picture her rocking, I know she was she was holding herself, bracing herself. Right? And and when I was writing that, I was thinking, man, could she have been remembering my grandfather? Could that be, could that be, yeah, could that be what she was doing? Imagining him holding her and they're dancing. Um, but just 
when you brought that up, the, the imagery took me back to being a kid, seeing her doing that. Um, I wasn't ready for that one. <laughs> no, it was good. It was good. It was good. Um, yeah. I mean, this is what we're talking about right here, about past meeting in the present, right? Yeah. Yep. And, and then feeling that in our bodies and the invitation is, is are we going to ignore that or listen to that? And what does, you know, kindness, like you had talked about the practice, you're going not to reactive practices, but to proactive practices and building the kind of resiliency that you need to just live in your skin in this world mm -hmm. without having to become disrupted. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna be reflecting on that all day. Grandma Rocking. I forgot I wrote that actually. Grandma Rocking, yeah. Was she dancing with my grandfather? And now framing that as a practice of, of wellness for her. Now, I just wish she had the language that she could she, she could recognize um, what she was doing and that it was good. It was good. It feels like it feels like like you carry those in your body, those practices, and maybe, and it feels like those are long practices. Like they're not just from your grandma, but it feels like they've been honed and, you know, passed down. You know, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, we, we, we talk about, you know, my people, we like to dance. And we know that that, that, can, that goes all the way back to the ancestors before they got here. Dancing is just built into, I think built into many cultures, but certainly in our culture it's built into that. And um, that's why we, that's why we so naturally, the beat comes on and we're home, it's safe. Music is safe, dancing is safe, it's a safe space. And again, I don't know if we realize it that that is a practice of wellness for us and it's, it's, it's woven into our, our bodies, our, our DNA at this point, I think. Um, yeah, and it's a natural response. There was one other piece that I'm remembering from your book about, um, I believe it was a pastor who was, was going to pray for the, something that happened in the community and all of a sudden he said, wait a second, is this a Black Lives Matter march? And, and you kind of talked about how like the way that <clears throat> the wellness practice is with their feet. And right here you're talking about dancing and it's taking your feet to the streets and it's, and it's the rhythm uh, you know, together, what our feet sound like together, marching. I'm just remembering that from your book and feeling how well that just fits into this conversation here about like movement and our bodies and knowing our bodies know what to do. Yeah, yeah. And it goes back to, I think what we were talking about earlier about the fragmentation, uh, reversing that and actually integrating our bodies and, and appreciating our bodies and not, um, especially in Christianity, it's, it's this binary body, bad, it's neglected, it doesn't matter. All that matters is your soul. And I think a lot of us have adopted that even unconsciously, uh, but integrating our bodies and seeing those movements, those practices, those um, the things that we don't really think about 
seeing them as important to our, our healing and wellness. Um, so yeah, uh, uh, being at the march and feeling it in our feet and walking as, as, as um, Pastor Bobby was saying in the film, um, he needed that. He because 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 he can he can he will do more than just remember what he saw. He can now remember what he felt. Right. Um, I can remember what I felt last summer, summer before last, in, at, at the protest I attended, I was at. I remember what I saw, who I was next to. Um, were, were my feet hurting? Were my knees hurting? How was the sun on my skin? Was it cool? Was it a breeze early? What was happening, right? Now I'm inviting my body to be a part of this, 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 this process, this um, remembering, not just here, which can be suppressed um, so easily, I think. But anyway, yeah. Well, I mean, we have to have another conversation. That's all I'm thinking. We got a lot more. We got a lot more things to talk about. But how, like, how can people find you? How can they find your work? <clears throat> how can they get connected to you? And um, yes, and I know you have a podcast too. Like, just want to hear how they can find you, and we'll put that in our notes. And then Maggie will give you the last three questions. But curious how people can find you. Yeah, the the, the first thing I tell people is philallenjr.com, P-H-I-L-A-L-L-E-N-J-R dot com and my social media handle is pretty much phil, phil allen jr twitter facebook i have, a, I have a, a, a author page on facebook i have a personal page both of the same phil allen jr one is author one is personal um instagram is phil allen jr ig mm-hmm. um my my podcast is intersections with phil allen jr i want you to remember phil allen jr <laughs> <laughs> but but you can get that on my website you can get there on my website or you can you know apple spotify amazon music um audible uh so yeah those are the ways you can can follow me and get in touch with me um yeah yeah we will put oh sorry what's that i was gonna say the book is on amazon Uh just type in open wounds um and you you'll, you'll find it should be the first one or two books that come up we will put links to all of that. Your all the you know your Instagram handles, your podcast, your website, and your and your book, Open Wounds. Um, this has been sacred space, and I just want to tell you I'm in awe and have such gratitude uh, for you for this conversation and for the work that you're doing. So like, thank you so much. And um, we always wrap up our podcasts by asking our guests the same three questions. That is, what are you reading right now? What are you listening to? And who or what is inspiring you? Oh man, reading. <laughs> There's no one particular person I'm reading. My my place is stacked with books all over the place. Um, I would say one voice that I really, really keep going back to is Willie Jennings, theologian Willie Jennings. Um, he's all his work is always in in the mix for me. But I'm reading so many things for my different papers, different articles, books, as I prepare my dissertation proposal right now. Um, what am I listening to? I love old school hip hop and R&B. I'm a, I'm a 
late eight, well, all through the 80s, but certainly the 90s when I was in college, we call the golden era. Um, so that's on my, I have a playlist and I just put it on shuffle and I go run, I work out with it. When I, I take a walk almost every day, you know, the practice of wellness. And I listen to, to that, that playlist. And I, I, I go back and forth with, uh, I have a worship playlist as well that I listen to um, sometimes when I'm running and walking. Um, but that old school R&B and hip hop, that's always, always playing. And who inspires me? You know, I'm, I'm really inspired by the next generation who, who, who are, I'm a serious person. I laugh and joke with the best of them, but I'm always thinking, and I'm always thinking about um, things that I think are, are that really matter. Um, and they're not light subjects, but I'm just amazed and inspired by the younger generation who uh, they see, they're not just out there, just blah, blah, blah. You know, Amanda Gorman, um, she's inspired. Her poetry, I'm a poet, I've been a poet, been doing spoken words since 97. And when I heard her, I went and wrote. I'm not, I'm not afraid to say the younger generation is inspiring me. The protest I was at last summer was put on by early, you know, young adults. I was inspired to see them, you know, it was multi-ethnic and I was inspired by it, you know, and I wanted them to see um, my generation there, that, that we see you, we're with you, um, we see the work, we support you, right? So I would just say the younger generation, those who are, who are making an impact, um, they inspire me. They're, they're ahead of the game, in my opinion, than, than where I was when I was young. And all I could think about was basketball. So. Well, I so honored to be with you. And I'm so, I'm just blown away that you responded to my email and we were connected. And um, there's been many times where I've thought over the last like couple weeks, like, oh, I want to send that to him. Like, want to see what he thinks <laughs> about that. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to another conversation, hopefully in the future. And um, thank you so much for being with us today. Would love to be back. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. God bless you.